It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Hour on a Friday here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, the podcast, free every day. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. 21 plus only, as always, drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. It's delicious. Find out where it's sold near you. TheLongDrink.com. So a few weeks ago, here on the Guy Benson Show, we were talking about one of producer Christine's bad dreams that she was having. And over the course of that nonsense conversation, my brain took an off-ramp and went down the path of dreams. And I remembered, it just flickered, a documentary that I had watched now probably a year or a year and a half ago called Dream Killer, which is now available on Netflix. And it was about this guy who spent a decade in prison for a murder he did not commit. And it turned out that I actually have, through my husband, a family connection to this guy. And I found the documentary, honestly, one of the most shocking things I've ever seen. I could not believe that what happened to my next guest would be possible in the United States of America under our criminal justice system, which we all know is imperfect and needs improvement, but you hope would have enough safeguards to avoid the absolute travesty that occurred years ago. Ryan Ferguson spent nearly 10 years, as I mentioned, in prison. He was wrongfully convicted of a 2001 murder in his hometown, Columbia, Missouri. It was a sports journalist, if I recall correctly, who was murdered in a parking lot. At the time of the murder, Ferguson was 17 years old and in high school. He was arrested two years later based on evidence that is not evidence. And he was convicted on that fake evidence. He is now, thank God out of prison because really of the work of one person who is also in studio with me today. Ryan now is roughly my age, a few months apart. He's a certified personal trainer. He's an advocate against false convictions, which would make sense. I think I might dedicate my life to that too if I were in his shoes. I think I might be a lot angrier, frankly, and more bitter of a person if I went through what he went through. He's author of the book Stronger, Faster, Smarter, a guide to your most powerful body. Ryan Ferguson, we'll get to your father here in a second, but I'm delighted to meet you. It's sort of surreal having watched this movie. It's like it's like you're a celebrity in my mind. I'm grateful that you spent some time and came in studio here to join us. Yeah, Guy, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And really any opportunity to discuss our criminal justice system, which is inherently good, but does have flaws. And, and we can discuss what can and needs to be fixed within that system, it's a, it's a great opportunity. So let's just talk through the basics of the case. And I would strongly encourage folks who are listening right now, do yourself a favor, make an appointment with your Netflix subscription and watch Dream Killer. Honestly, 
and just buckle up. But for people who may not have Netflix or what have you, we don't have to go into the entire story, but just give us the big bullet points, the timeline. You're a high school student. Someone gets murdered in your hometown. Two years later, you get arrested. Why? Great question. Uh, you know, I often ask myself that same question. Why? Uh, so a murder happened when I was in high school. You don't really think much about it. You know, that happens in, in your town. And uh, it was weird. I remember, you know, people were like, wow, that's a Halloween night. Somebody's murdered. That's all you think about it for two years. And then I'm arrested. They don't tell me why. And they don't even tell me what for. I have midterms the next day. I'm more concerned with my midterms than talking to the police. I'm like, they're just going to do their job, ask me what they got to ask me, and then I'll go home. Uh, long story short, a friend of mine from high school had a dream about the murder, unbeknownst to me, and he literally tells the police, if I did it, Ryan, I'm Ryan, must have been with me. And that's what I was arrested on. That's why they started questioning me. And A, all, a yes. dream. This is why it's called Dream Killer. Correct. A friend of yours from home had a dream that he may have committed this murder, and if he did it, if, you did it with him. Correct. And you get arrested. To me, that's wild even to just get arrested, let alone all the steps forward to conviction, which obviously happened because you end up in prison for 10 years. You must have still felt like, okay, well, this is clearly a wrongful arrest. This is going to get cleared up somehow. I mean, I didn't do this. This is crazy. Dreams are not evidence. What the hell is going on? At what point did you start to realize, uh-oh, this might turn into something where I could go – to prison based on, like, testimony, quote-unquote, of a, quote-unquote, co-conspirator based on a dream? That's a great question. I, you know, it, it took time to realize what was really happening to me. Whenever I was picked up and questioned, I didn't realize at the time that I was under arrest. I mean, they arrested me without an investigation. So I was arrested, and then they investigated. So for months and months, evidence would come out. And it would all show that I was innocent or I was not there. It would help prove my case. And I'm in the county jail at this time. And my bond, I didn't have bond for nine months. And then they gave me a $20 million bond. $20 million. $20 million. Other people with the same charge had a bond for $500,000. Mine was $20 million. So you can see that they were biased against me. It wasn't about right and wrong and, and a fair hearing, essentially. It was about trying to prove a point that we are going to arrest you, we're going to put you in prison, and you're a horrible person without having done any investigation. So every time evidence would come back, like the tire tool that they tried to say was used, and it showed that it was not used and it had nothing to do with the crime. As the weapon. As the weapon, correct. Uh, it had nothing to do with the crime. It would come back, and I'm like, okay, they're going to come open the doors and let me out of this cage and back into society because now they can see that I'm innocent. And time after time, things like that would happen, and they never opened those doors. And so months of my life went by, a year of my life went by, and then I realized it doesn't matter what evidence proves my innocence. They're going to try to convict me no matter what. We're going to get to how this all finally unraveled and how you did get out in a second. But talk about the conviction. Talk about that moment where the jury decides that you are guilty of something that you did not do based on evidence that is I mean, flimsy doesn't even begin to cover the evidence that I put in air quotes that they had against you. And yet it was enough in this trial to send you away. You have this this sort of shock, I'm sure, 
this numbness of, I just got convicted. You then go to prison. And then as a follow-up question, at what point does prison start to feel normal for you? Because it wasn't just a few months. It was a decade, a prime decade of your life. You're, you know, in your 20s. Yeah. Your 20s were stolen from you. 19 to 29, uh, all my 20s, basically. And the, and the question about trial and being convicted, uh, it's a very interesting one to me because as I'm sitting there and they're presenting this quote-unquote evidence, the prosecution knows I'm innocent. He knows the evidence that he's putting forth is not accurate. Remind us of his name. Kevin Crane. Kevin Crane. Who is still a judge. He's now a judge. Yep. Has not been held accountable for his actions, which are a lot of actions that you can prove that he knows he put on perjured testimony. People he knew was lying to put me in prison for really 40 years. Fortunately, I only did 10. But uh, if it were up to him, it were up to the Columbia police who also know I'm innocent. I would still be in prison wasting away until I'm in my mid-50s. So that's that's hard to, to fathom. And while I'm in trial and they're lying to the jury, I'm looking back at the people, the jury and the people in the, the audience there, and they're looking at me like I'm some kind of caged animal. And it was the worst feeling you can imagine because I'm just a normal kid. I was in college. And now these people are looking at me like I'm some disgusting thing, you know? Mm. And... It's the look on these people's faces is it was the hardest thing for me to get over. And I knew there I basically had no chance because my attorney was not very good. Kevin Crane. Well, that is a very kind way of putting it, I would say. We'll <laughs> yeah. get into that in a second. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. And Kevin Crane, the prosecutor who was corrupt, was, was corrupt. That's the only was way and is. is. I mean, I don't know. You can't shed that stain if you do something like that. That is a lifelong mark of corruption in my book. Certainly. And it blows my mind that he still has a job at all in the law, that he still is a member of the bar, let alone a judge, which I think speaks poorly of everyone involved in that process. Quickly on the prison stuff. Certainly. Because we are creatures of habit and routine. At some point, your life, your routine, your habit became that of an inmate. Right. Um, you know, you're a young guy. You're a good-looking guy. Prison is a scary place. How did you make that adjustment? What were your coping mechanisms? How did you survive? Because to me, it's like you have to survive. You're there. It would be hard enough if, if you were there and you deserved it. You were there and you didn't deserve it. And there's a bunch of people in prison who say, oh, I didn't do it, right? That's that's a common trope. In your case, you actually didn't do it and the, and the trial was an absolute sham. How did you have the mental ability, sort of the mental fortitude to survive for a decade behind bars? Great question. And uh, I can honestly say it all goes back to family and the support and the strength that they gave me, the advice. When I first got arrested, it was the second day, I think, I was talking to my father on the phone and he said, man, obviously I'd do anything I can to help protect you, but I can't be in there with you. You have to do everything that you can to make yourself stronger, faster, and smarter if you want to survive this. And I did. I started working out that day. I started reading every day uh, that day. Like, I mean, I, I spent six hours a day reading and two hours a day working out. And so that kind of helped me get over some of the mental and physical barriers that I probably would have had uh, dealing with a lot of really bad people. And so going to prison, as terrifying as it was, I was somewhat prepared because I was smarter than a lot of the people there because I'd been working on myself. I had two years in the county jail to prepare. And I was bigger than most people. So 
basically it's like the bear in the woods theory, I, I think. And it's like, as, as long as I have somebody in the woods with me that's slower than me, I'm going to be safe, right? Mm. And prison's full of people who were dumber and weaker than I was. And I kind of leaned on that, you know? I uh, If you just stay out of a lot of bad things, uh, gambling, some of the weird sex things that go on there, like it's a weird, strange world. As long as you stay out of those kind of corners, then you're going to be okay, and other people are going to find the problems, and uh, and you can just kind of exist. Ryan, let's hold it right there. Let's take a break. When we come back, one of the most amazing elements of this story is your relationship with your father. We will bring in your father as soon as we come back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. special hour on The Guy Benson Show. Ryan and Bill Ferguson joining me in studio. Ryan spent 10 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. And Ryan, you were talking about family and support. Let's bring in your dad, Bill Ferguson, father of Ryan, who is the hero of this movie. He's the hero of this story. I cannot tell you, sir, how much respect I have for you. I mean, what is so incredible about this story, it's not just about grave injustice, and it is. It is also about some of the most incredible determination that I've ever seen. And you knew that your son was innocent. The world did not know that. The world had passed this whole thing by. He's rotting away in prison. You never got over it. You never allowed it really to be the new normal. You could not stand that this injustice was happening to your son. Talk about the process, the decisions that you made, and how you went about setting this right. Well, again, that's a great, uh, great question, Guy. Um, when the process started, we were all shocked. The whole family was, was totally shocked. I was just, just couldn't believe something like that could happen. And um, so within 24 hours, I realized this is real. And I know enough about the law that uh, you have to, if you depend on a lawyer or other people to rectify it, then you're going to be very disappointed. So I knew uh, that I was going to have to get busy. I would have to investigate the case myself. Was this after the conviction? No, no. This is at the this arrest. This is before, okay. The arrest. And I did even more after the conviction. But I, uh, one of the first things I got was what's called discovery. I don't know if you know what that is, but uh, they don't want to give it to you. I mean, uh, we had to— It's add, what the prosecution has. It's what they that, have as, as evidence, and you have a right to see it. That, that is correct. Uh, but it's difficult to get, even though you have a right to it. And uh, we uh, had to get the judge uh, to compel the prosecutor to give us uh, the discovery, which we deserve, which we should have by law. And finally, finally, she gave uh, him an ultimatum uh, that he had a, a week to, to give us the discovery. Once I got the discovery, which is uh, thousands of pages, or maybe I should say hundreds, a couple thousand pages, uh, I just read through that syllable by syllable familiarizing myself with the case, seeing how it happened, how it all came together, and then we started putting our case together. Your son, Ryan, who we've been speaking to here on The Guy Benson Show, was, uh, I'd say, extremely, exceedingly polite when he referred to his defense attorney as perhaps lackluster. Uh, I was cringing, cringing as I watched this documentary, some of the courtroom scenes where it it was just mind-bending incompetence. Like, what... What are you doing? Do Did you do any preparation at all for this? And this prosecutor who was I – would, I would almost use the word evil. I was also pretty sharp and could run circles around 
this person mm. and convince the jury of something that didn't happen. If that's how I was feeling, watching it, knowing the outcome, I cannot fathom the frustration, to put it mildly, that you must have been feeling sitting there in the courtroom watching this like, what are you, what are you doing? Well, it is shocking, uh, especially when you're experiencing it firsthand and knowing there's nothing you can do about it because of the process, it's like a car going off a cliff. Uh, you're in the car, you're going off the cliff, and you know what's going to happen next. It's going to be a crash. Yeah, but you're and in the back seat. Then you're in the back seat. You can't even reach the steering wheel. Even if you could, there's nothing you can do about it, and that's where you are in court. You you have, yeah, that's that's a good analogy. I'm in the back seat. I cannot get hold of the steering wheel, and even if I could, I couldn't steer the the car back up the cliff. Right, and it's the Grand Canyon in this case because your son's right. going to prison for murder, a murder he didn't commit. Correct. So he's now in prison. Right. On the say-so of this other guy who's also in prison, right, who right. clearly has all sorts of issues. When you see him in the documentary, he's, he is, uh, you know, a character and sort of this, this tragic person. And I, I imagine there's probably some anger towards him. I, how could there not be? What were a few of the turning points? Because getting a conviction overturned is actually really hard, as you know. I mean, you went right. on this nationwide tour. Mm. You're driving a car around, begging people to pay attention to the case of your son. And it actually worked, but not for a long time, through setback after setback. But then, at last, the thing started to turn. The ship started to turn. How did you turn the ship? You know, I uh, as a kid, I used to watch a show that was called Gunsmoke. And then almost um, uh, every show, they'd have a cattle stampede. The cows would run off, and the, the, the cowboys would get out in front of them and turn the herd turn you know, back. And and that's the way it is in a trial, uh, being convicted or being charged. It's a cattle stampede, and good luck on stopping a cattle stampede. You've got to turn the herd. How do you do that? Well, it turns out I did a, uh, a story with the local newspaper, and he was very sympathetic to our situation after I showed him the evidence. And he goes, I, I think that your son's being wrongfully uh, charged. I said, thank this you. This is a journalist, a local this journalist. journalist. This, is where, this is where journalism really can do good in this world. That's why a lot of people get into journalism, because when the truth is on your side, sometimes the media, because they get demonized, and I think <laughs> they deserve it a lot of the time, sometimes they do a lot of good, and I think it's safe to say you, Ryan, would still be in prison today if not for the press. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we wrote this story, and I did something a little unusual. I, I said to the, uh, the reporter, he was the top reporter from the Tribune, the, 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 uh, the person had worked, that had died, and uh, I, uh, he wanted to do The murder it. victim yes. had worked at that. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so he, he – I, I said, you know, I'd like to do the interview with you, but I, I do have a stipulation. He goes, okay, well, what is it? I said, well, uh, I want to read – your print before you put it out. He goes, oh, we don't do that. You don't understand. I go, well, you don't understand. If I cannot do that, this is going to be a really short interview. And he goes, this is the biggest case that's happened in Boone County. And I really want to be a part of it. I want to write the story. I said, and I'd like for you to, but I want, I'm not, I'm not looking at your print. Uh, not looking at your story to be critical or try to get you to change. I just want to make sure what you put in there is correct. And he goes, that's it. I said, yeah. I said, he goes, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll send you uh, my draft, and let's just see how it goes. He goes, I've never done this before. Mm. but but uh, Extenuating circumstances. Yes. And he goes, I do want the story. And he goes, I, I, your reputation precedes you. I know you won't do it. 
Uh, unless unless you get your way. Yeah, you were okay. very stubborn, but you had to be. I had right? to be. If you were not stubborn, Ryan would be in prison still. I think so. Our conversation with Ryan and Bill Ferguson continues after this on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It's a special happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Ryan and Bill Ferguson in studio talking about this shocking, wrongful conviction and finally justice. What actually turned it? What finally shook loose where you could prove the stuff that you knew to be true? How were you finally able to prove it and also in such a way that it was like eligible for appeal? Because some things may prove seemingly that someone is innocent, but it, under the rules of evidence and under the law, it actually doesn't count. And, and it's not something where you would have standing to challenge something. So how did you get around that? What was the tipping point or tipping points? Well, uh, so that story, he wrote five parts, and it came to Manhattan. It came to uh, 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 48 Hours, and they and the producer saw it, and the producer thought, we'd like to do the story. So they contacted me, and they said, we'd like to come to Columbia and, and talk to you about this story. So they said, what should we do? I said, let's walk the crime scene. And I had a huge three-ring notebook with all the information in it. Yeah, I remember. And, and, and so we walked the crime scene, and I'd say, now right over here, uh, the, uh, the police did such and such. And um, uh, the reporter said, now, how, how do you know that, Mr. Ferguson? And I said, oh, it's in Police Report 254. She goes, do you have Police Report 254? I said, yeah, it's right here. She goes, okay. So we went around the whole tour like that, and then we got back to the car where we started, uh, she goes, could we have a copy of that? And I go, this is your copy. I gave her the entire notebook because <laughs> I anticipated that they would want that. The thing that made it unique, and I you know, look, look at a lot of those crime shows, the thing that made this unique is that uh, uh, I was able to to give them documented evidence. And Ryan and I said right from the very beginning, we're not going to say or do anything unless we can document it. We're not going to get into rumors innuendos. We're not going to talk badly about people. We're only going to talk about the facts. If we cannot use documentation, then we're not going to talk about it. And so by daylight or 40 hours looking at the uh, police reports, that's the documentation, then that gave them the courage to go forth and really get into this case because now it's not based on people crying and upset and, you know, acting like that. It's not emotions and feelings. It's some verifiable facts. Right. And and, uh, and there were there were eyewitnesses. Right. right. So it wasn't just the dream. It wasn't like, you know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this man had a dream. This other guy over here, the defendant, was in the dream and therefore sent him to prison. They found some witnesses who claimed that Ryan Ferguson was there. And that also was a big shift in this case when they started to recant. Someone reached out to you, right? Yes. Uh, well, several people. Uh, one in particular, uh, we created a web page, and I, I knew sooner or later that somebody would get on onto the computer and would get onto the web page, and she did. And she goes, I'd like to talk to you sometime. And I met her at the crime scene, uh, like, uh, uh, was after the trial, actually. And, uh, and she said, I just want to tell you face to face that that was not your son. That was not Ryan Ferguson there. And uh, I said, Jill, you are 100% certain that my son, Ryan Ferguson, was not the person 
that was at the crime. She goes, absolutely. I said, okay, great. So that led us to— And the prosecutor knew that. Oh, absolutely. Right? And Ryan saying, wants to jump in. Yeah, I'd love to jump in here because the prosecution knew that—she told that to the prosecution. Yeah. And she described him as scary and manipulative, and he did not give us that information. Mm-hmm. There, that is a little pe- a little bit of all the information he didn't get of us. He so the, a lot the of discovery that was held from you, which is not allowed, that would be misconduct, right? So was Absolutely. that was his misconduct ultimately the way you were able to get your foot in the door to get this thing overturned? Well, ultimately, it's called a Brady violation. It's a very technical term, a Brady violation. And it started in um, 1963, that you have to reveal information. But that's the key thing. You just elaborated on that, that uh, that Shauna Arndt, she's the, the witness, told the prosecutor on two occasions that Ryan was not the person, but he didn't tell that to anybody. And when the trial occurred, she was uh, a witness. He, I did not ask her, can you point out the person you saw in the uh, parking lot. Although the defense attorney didn't either, right? Like, am I remembering that correctly? That's correct. But, oh. but, but, I, under, but I understand why. There, there's a reason for that. Uh, no no defense attorney would ask that because he didn't know what she was going to right, say. Right, but you can, I guess she, it wasn't his role to prep that that witness. But at the same time, it's a little he tricky. could have asked that question if you guys had been provided with the statements that right. this witness had given it, the prosecutor that it wasn't right. you, then he would have had Thank the you. ammo. So instead, right. he it was just one thing after another that led to the conviction, but then it starts to unwind. At some point, a very prominent, high-powered lo- a lawyer gets involved because oh. the initial attorney was terrible. <laughs> In comes Kathleen Zellner. Right. So, Ryan, talk to us about Kathleen Zellner, and was there a point where you— because I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. I would, at some stage of this thing, refuse to give myself any more hope ever again because you would, I'd I'd imagine, build up hope only to get crushed and then crushed and then crushed. And I might just say, like, enough. Did Kathleen Zellner's involvement start to light that flicker again of, of hope? And when did you start to maybe suspect, I really do have a chance of getting out of here? Kathleen definitely changed how I felt about the whole situation and when I thought I would be getting out of prison. She came on board in 2009, and shortly thereafter— And you've been in prison at that point for how long? uh, Since 2004. All right, so So, five years, halfway through this is when she got on board. That was a rough five years. (laughs) But then you had five more years. Mm -hmm. That's that's the crazy thing. Five more years. Yeah, I got out in two thousand. And, and even with somebody as amazing as Kathleen Zellner right. and all the evidence that we had already dug up, proving my innocence, the whole world can see this at this point. They it still took that long to get out, and that's what you know. One of the many issues with our criminal justice system is if it is wrong, if it is proven to be wrong, there are not many avenues for relief. They want to maintain the, the right, a jury verdict the is basically final, right? With Pretty very honest. few exceptions. They like the finality, and they want to leave it that way. There's a case in Missouri. Went to the Supreme Court, and they they literally argued, even though they knew and had DNA evidence that the person on death row was innocent, that they should allow him to be killed to keep the finality of conviction. Yeah. See, this is part of the reason. Just as a digression politically, I'm a conservative. I used to be in favor of the death penalty. I am not anymore as it currently stands because I don't think it is okay for the state to end someone's life who has a chance of being innocent. Right. And in your case, 
if it were a capital case, right, these things drag on forever in, on appeal. But the idea that you, Ryan, could have been put to death yeah. for this is absolutely terrifying and unacceptable to me. They're going to try, but you are now here sitting in a studio with me in New York City because you had the ability to at least pursue all of this stuff while still living and breathing and not being put to death by the state based on an egregious series of mistakes and, in fact, aggressive malfeasance, intentional Mm. malfeasance of the state. That's part of the reason why I turned against the death penalty at least, you know, we can get into a more nuanced conversation. It's, it's a little bit more of a gray area than that for me on a policy level. But I want to make sure that we get as much of this in as we can. At some point in this process, the other guy, the dreamer, who's also in prison, he writes you. He writes you a letter that ultimately concludes with him testifying at your retrial. I know I'm jumping way ahead, but we have to. You finally get enough evidence on your side and you marshal enough facts to convince the process, the system to give you another crack at it. Once you had that second opportunity and there was no way that you guys were going to let that slip Mm -hmm. by the two of you, your new attorney, this guy, Chuck, you know, your buddy who dreamed, literally dreamed up the murder, your involvement in it. What was his message to you? And what did he ultimately testify on round two? Ultimately, he wrote a letter, and I remember getting a letter. I'm in prison, of course, and it has Charles Erickson's name on it. And I'm like, I'm getting a letter from Charles Erickson? It blew my mind. And he just acknowledged the fact that he lied and that he wanted to come queen and, and, and admit that. And How so, long were you in prison when you That got- was in 2009. It was right after Kathleen came right, So five or six years mm-hmm. he's been sitting there knowing that he lied. Correct. And he finally decides he wants to do something about it years into your bogus conviction right. and imprisonment. Okay. And so finally, you know, it takes time to get hearing. Uh, you have to go through the courts. And so every appeal takes a year or two years. So whenever they deny one, you know, I know two years of my life are gone. And I know, you know, when I get that letter, another two years will happen before I even get into court and get that ruled on. So I'm happy, but I'm also like, you know, I'm going to be here for a while. So we end up getting a hearing. We end up uh, having Erickson admit that he lied. We have all the evidence proving that I'm innocent. And I'm going to jump ahead here, uh, but Jerry Trump also acknowledged that he lied. The two people who testified against me said I was there. They both admitted the lying, subjecting themselves to 30 years in prison for lying. So, you know, they had an, every incentive to just continue with their lie, and they went ahead and acknowledged that they they uh, they. Did wrong. Well, and thank God that happened because I'd imagine there are some cases where people said, well, I might feel a little bad about this, but I'm not going to prison. Happens every day. For this, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, at long last, let's fast forward to the end. You now are in front of a new judge. All the evidence is out there. This prosecutor who put you away, what, what does he have to say for himself? And then what happens? Well, before we can jump to the end, there's, there's a hiccup in the middle. And uh, I just have to bring it up because... Judge Daniel Green in Jefferson City uh, I pretty much is friends with Kevin Crane and protected him. So both the people who put the me— The prosecutor. The prosecutor, Kevin Crane, yeah. So this judge and this prosecutor, buddies, they probably play golf together. Who knows? Um, Crane comes and testifies at the hearing. You can see it all on, on uh, the documentary. But long story short, 100% proved my innocence at that hearing. The judge takes a year to rule on it, basically— and 
denies it. So And when did he deny it? And he denied it on the anniversary of the murder. So he literally waited a year to basically send a message. Theatrics there. Yeah, to send a message that it doesn't matter what evidence you have or that the whole world can see it, we're not going to let you out. So how did you get past that? Fortunately, there's an appeals process. So another year, two years goes by. Hmm. And, uh, and, you know, that was the most crushing moment, I think, for all of us, really, because all the evidence, 100% proved my innocence, the whole world can see it, and they can still get away with denying it and leaving me in prison. So fortunately, we went to the uh, Western District Court of Appeals, uh, multiple judges, they're not related, they're not tied into the community. And that's where we felt like we would actually get a fair hearing. And we did. And a three judge panel said unequivocally, you know, they had evidence hidden from us, Brady violations, and the case should be overturned. And clearly uh, that I'm innocent and that, you know, they could try to retry me if they wanted to. But yeah, that was they, not going to happen. No, because everybody could see uh, that there's no evidence that I didn't belong there to begin with. So that was very fortunate that we had already had all that evidence and the state chose not to. It's just incredible. And it is outrageous. I want to get some final thoughts from Ryan in particular when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Home stretch on this Friday and a special, unusual, important edition of The Guy Benson Show. I am in studio with Ryan and Bill Ferguson talking about this wrongful conviction under which Ryan spent a decade of his life, nearly all of his 20s, in prison for a murder he did not commit. So, Bill, this was a decade of your life. This was a decade of your son's life. It finally is resolved. You have finally actually won. Talk to us about the first time outside of prison in freedom that you were able to hug Ryan. Well, it was that they released him at the Boone County uh, uh, Jail. And um, he came over, and uh, we had a big hug. First time outside of uh, the prison, but we were still in the confines of the jail. And then we went over to the Tiger Hotel, and I I reserved uh, the ballroom. I would hope so. So, do you have a drink? I would have had a drink. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to have a drink, drink later. Good, good man. But uh, <laughs> but we want to get there because I had uh, put out uh, a notice that we're going to have a press conference, and Brian would be speaking, and. Uh, Gosh, what were there, like 15 cameras there, I think, uh, networks from St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, Jefferson City, everybody's there. The ballroom was completely maxed out, I feel like. And Ryan stood up and gave uh, one of the best speeches. Uh, it wasn't like a can speech. That was speaking from the heart. And it was so well so well spoken and so well architect, uh, articulated. Uh, I think the, you got a, a, a big clap for that. And... Uh, uh, that was so re- reassuring. And then I got another hug, and that's the one that really made the difference. We're on the stage, every, in front of everybody, in front of all the television cameras, and now we know it's it, real. It's real. It's that real. was a good hug. And <laughs> the, well, the first hug, literally, they I didn't even know if I was getting out. I, I had no idea. I knew that the conviction was overturned, but I sat in prison for a week after that. Then they came, got me, took me to the county jail. I didn't know if they were going to rearrest me and then put me in the county jail, try to retry me. I didn't know what was going on. And I'm sitting in the back of a van. I'm handcuffed. I'm shackled. I'm in orange jumpsuit. I'm not free by any means. And I see 
uh, my father, my mother, uh, my girlfriend, they all walked into the Sally Port. And I knew at that point they would have never let them in there if I wasn't going home. And they all walk in and then they open the door. Before I can hug them, they have to unshackle me. Mm -hmm. They're sitting there watching me be uncaged and unleashed. And then we hug. And so that was good. But like you said, the, the best hug was... Being away from there, being away from prison. All of this stuff is in the documentary. Mm -hmm. I mean, you need to see this for yourself. If you have enjoyed this hour here on The Guy Benson Show, please go watch Dream Killer. Last question, and it's for you, Ryan. Are you angry that a decade was stolen from you? And second part of the question is, what would be the number one reform that you would like to see to a system that really screwed you? Thank you so much for this question. Uh, I think it's the most important question, the most important thing we can take away from our whole experience, my family's mine, the 10 years that I lost. I am angry, but it's what you do with that anger. And I think I try to do positive things with that anger, and the most positive thing I can do is stop other innocent people from going to prison for crimes they did not commit. Because this is our criminal justice system. It could happen to you. It could happen to one of our family members again. It could happen to anybody we know. And the reason it can happen, the reform that needs to happen, is there needs to be accountability for prosecutors. If pro like Our system is designed and worded so well that if it worked the way it says it should, it would be a, a perfect system. But there's human error. And there and there's bad people. There's bad people. And they're and, not always, quote unquote, the bad guys. Right. Either. There, there are literally thousands of people in, in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And I've met hundreds of them, literally hundreds of them. And in almost every case, a prosecutor knew that they were sending an innocent person to prison and there has been no accountability. They're, they're not arrested. They're not put in prison. They're not, they don't even lose their law license. I think three prosecutors have lost their law license in over 3,000 wrongful convictions. Yeah. I mean, and look, we on this show support law enforcement and the criminal justice system strongly. There are bad people, many of them out there. We need to be protected from them. That's what the system is designed to do. And I think as conservatives who support law enforcement, we can also recognize, speaking for myself, that there are flaws in the system. And it's not weakness to admit that and to try in good faith to fix some of those weaknesses. I think that's something that's not left or right or center or anything. That's what we should all aspire to. And that's why I wanted to bring this story to our audience because, uh, you know, now it's years old. You're on to a great life. You're living here in New York. Uh, you know, your dad's in town. You guys are hanging out. But there was a decade-long nightmare, and you are one example of far too many where this can happen. And I think we should all commit ourselves to at least the goal of reducing the number of wrongful convictions that happen in the country. And I just want people to really hear your story, think about these issues, go watch the documentary Dream Killer if, if you're curious. What does this guy look like? What does his dad look like? It's it's an amazing, amazing film. Um, Bill, I cannot overstate my respect for you and just indefatigable for a decade for, on behalf of your son. Just, I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times, but I am in awe of what you did. And Ryan, I mean, the fact that you're still here <laughs> after a decade in prison and all those setbacks is just uh, an incredible testament. I'm I'm honored to have you guys on the show. Thank you both for coming in. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Ryan care, and Bill Ferguson. Wow. The documentary on Netflix, Dream Killer. What an inspirational but also sobering and eye-opening way to enter the weekend. Thank you both for being here. Thank you all for listening. Have a good weekend. Back here Monday, it's The Guy Benson Show.
The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to this show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.